You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Good morning. Since our church began over 50 years ago, we've been part of a denomination that's called the North American Baptist Conference. It's an association of 430 churches in Canada and the United States, and the NAB is affiliated with over 1,100 churches worldwide. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we are part of denominational organizations is that there's just some things that we can do better as many churches working together. The NAB has got a fantastic history of doing wonderful missionary work, and if you're interested in that, I encourage you to Google North American Baptist Conference, find the website, And one of the terrific ministries that the NAB conference has is causing the kingdom of God to grow in many, many places around the world. Check it out. Our guest speaker this morning has spent his entire ministry in the service of our conference. Reverend Dr. Phil Entema has pastored three churches. He served as our conference's executive director. And he's also served as president of an organization called the North American Baptist Conference Foundation. And the NAB foundation does three things. It does stewardship teaching how to manage the money that God has given us in accordance with the way that God wants us to manage money. Secondly, estate design or estate planning, and you've heard about that this morning. There'll be a free seminar this afternoon at 2 o'clock here at the church on estate planning. The third thing that the NAB Foundation does is it does what are called capital campaigns. It's hired by churches, associations, and other organizations to help raise money for things like constructing new churches or doing significant expansions and renovations. Although he's no longer president, Phil continues to work for the NAB Foundation. Last November here at our church, Phil presented what is called a stewardship weekend. The response to that weekend was so positive that our church's finance committee, with the full support of our pastoral staff, decided to hold a stewardship weekend once again. Yesterday was the Good Sense Money Management Seminar, and as we've said, this afternoon is the Estate Planning Seminar, at 2 p.m. I'm going to call Phil to the platform now, and while he's coming, before we came to church this morning, I asked, Phil, what's the title of your sermon? He said, it's called Six Eyes and Five Mys. I responded with a blank stare and said, can you give me that again? He says, Six Eyes, Five Mys, don't worry, it will all make sense. Let's give a warm White Ridge welcome to Phil Antima. All right, I'm back. So it's great. You know, I'm never surprised when uh, I'm invited someplace, but I'm shocked when I'm asked back. So uh, this is great. Really good to be here. I always enjoy coming here. As a lot of you, I call friends. We've known each other for years, and it is really good to be here. Want to put a plug in for the estate planning seminar today? You certainly don't want to miss that. It will be the highlight of your month. Sure. Uh, you know, it's really an important issue. If the Globe and Mail is correct, less than 40% of, of uh, Canadians have an up-to-date estate plan. Some of you uh, have a guardian for your 60-year-old children. It might be a good idea to have a look at that document. So uh, we'll, uh, hour and a half this afternoon tops. It'll seem like six hours, but it'll only be an hour and a half. And we'll walk you through the personal, spiritual, and mechanical part of an estate plan. Also give you some tools with which you can get yourself organized, and uh, it really is important. Uh, As I said last year, if you're a young family with preschool children and do not have a formal estate plan, 
Should something happen to the both of you, the province will decide who raises your children. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a decision I'm willing to allow them to make for me. Uh, if you uh, have assets you want to pass along to your children, we want to help you position them in a way that will be a blessing to your children and not a curse. So uh, show up at 2 o'clock and um, we will... Oh, I'll share with you the one and only acceptable estate planning joke. They are rarer than a hen's teeth, believe me. If you have one, let me know. Uh, I am in desperate need of, uh, of another one. Enough of that. What a confusing age we live in. You know, uh, the economics, both micro and macro, uh, are just uh, are just beyond comprehension. You know, I've gotten so confused, I uh, feel a little bit like the older pastor who uh, was getting up in years and was having trouble keeping organized thoughts in his mind. So we thought, you know, I'd better retire. But before I retire, I'm going to do one last service, and that'll be a baptism. So there he was, baptizing candidate after candidate under the waters of baptism. Finally, he got to the last gentleman, and his mind went completely blank. So in a panic, he, he said the first thing that came to his mind, and as he lowered the man under the water, he said, Drink ye all of it in remembrance of me. <laughs> now, I'm not quite that confused, but I'm well on the way. What's confusing is this. I uh, reported to you last year a, a Toronto Dominion Bank study based on StatsCan on the average, average Canadian family and their finances. Uh, they suggested that this year we will actually catch up to the Americans with the amount of debt that we have. Well, the news is we've not only caught up with them, we've exceeded them. 163% of the average Canadian family's income uh, is what their debt would be. In other words, if you uh, made 100000 you're probably $163,000 in debt. Now, the really alarming part of that is how far it's come over the last 20 years. In 1990, the number was 89%. In other words, if you owed a hundred, if you made a hundred thousand, you owed eighty-nine. So debt is by far outstripping the income of uh, Canadians, and it's caused some very significant problems. First of all, it's causing us to save less than we've uh, than we've saved in decades. Uh, in 1995, the saving rate peaked in Canada. It has gone down since then. It's leveled a couple times and gone down again, and. Um, we're saving less and less and less. Uh, as well, uh, 18 to 35-year-olds, the savings rate in RSPs is almost negligible. Not a good sign. The other thing it's done to us is it's made us somewhat less of a generous people. Uh, there is less than 2.2% of the Canadian gross national product goes to charities of any kind. That's symphonies, libraries, hospitals, and God's work. Bibby study, it says it's even showing in evangelical Christians that we are becoming a little less and less generous. Now, I don't hope to solve all of these problems today, but what is it that is causing some of these changes? And we're going to address it today in a sermon that Jesus preached in Luke chapter 12. Now, the problem is far more complex than I can uh, ever hope to address this morning. But Jesus says at the bottom of a lot of our financial struggles is a problem. And he's going to address it in Luke chapter 12. In your uh, bulletins, you had a little handy-dandy outline you may want to pull out and uh, track along with me here. 
check them off as I go through them. But uh, we're going to deal with this, Luke chapter 12. Now, Luke chapter 12 is an interesting passage, if you will. I'm going to get you ready for it with a running start here. The context is this. Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, someone who really didn't appreciate Jesus that much, but for whatever reason, had him in. Things did not go well, as you can imagine. And partway through the supper, Jesus left. Outside of the Pharisee's house were thousands of people gathered, hoping he would come out and hoping that he would say something to him. So he addressed the crowd. He covered the issue that he'd just been through. What do you do when you're persecuted? What do you do when things don't go well? What if you're pulled before the courts? What do you say? So he begins to preach a message on what happens when you're persecuted. The entire chapter is one sermon. Many times as pastors, we hack it up into several, but it's one sermon beginning to end. And so that's the context. Something bizarre is going to happen right in the middle of his message that doesn't happen anywhere else in the New Testament. And the other interesting thing about this passage is at the end, there is a verse with significant bite behind it. So get ready for that. Remember, Jesus' sermon, I'm just repeating it. If you're upset with anybody, It'll have to be him. So um, there we go. Now, there's a couple of tools I want to give to you, understanding the context of the passage. Two tools. The first tool is Dr. Luke's use of the personal pronoun. There are three pronoun shifts in this single message. Remember, one message beginning to end, but he's going to speak to three different groups. First of all, he's going to speak to him. Then partway through a sermon, he's going to shift, and he's going to speak to them. And then with the same message, he's going to speak to his friends or to the disciples. So it's like I picked out three different groups today. The point of these pronoun shifts is every time there's a pronoun shift, Jesus ratchets the truth down a little tighter. It's a little bit uncomfortable, believe me. So look out for the pronoun shifts. I'll try and point them out to you. The other thing that's here is right smack dab in the middle of his message, he tells a story, which he is often apt to do, a parable, if you will. Now, what I'd like you to do is to consider the parable on three levels, and I'm going to give you the tools to do that. I want you to picture the parable as a frame. First of all, a parable is a picture frame. It's a portrait. Jesus paints a very precise easy to conjure up picture of something. And you're going to, like it was hanging on the wall, he's going to paint a word picture. If you close your eyes, you would be able to imagine exactly what that picture frame looked like and what story he was telling. As you gaze at the picture frame, the parable becomes a window frame. And you gaze through the parable to a spiritual truth learning something new about yourself and the God of the universe that stands behind it. As you're gazing at the window frame and looking at these spiritual principles, if we do it right, the window frame becomes a mirror frame. And at the end of the parable, we're left staring at ourselves. Here's the problem. In most parables, we want to always identify with the hero of the story. There is no hero in this story. There's just one very unsavory character. 
So if this thing works right, you're going to see your image superimposed over someone. You think, oh, I couldn't possibly be like that. Yes, you could. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go into it. The first parable, or I'm sorry, the first personal pronoun, he starts his message. It's on persecution, uh, verse 13 and 14 of uh, Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to him. Uh, where did it go? Oh, there it is. Um, first, uh, Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Well, see what's happening here. He's right in the middle of his message, and this young man barges right up onto the platform or wherever he's speaking. He doesn't have a request. He doesn't have a question. He barks an order at the king of the universe. His father must have recently died. And in uh, Judaic law, it states that the older brother gets a double portion and the rest of the family splits what's left over. This wasn't good enough for this kid, you know? Hey, I want 50-50. Force him to split it with me. Well, Jesus would have nothing to do with it. So the question you have to ask yourself, what drove this young man to do something so stupid? I mean, he looked ridiculous. Uh, I call him my Murphy's Law young man. You know, Murphy's Law is whatever can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible moment. The particular Murphy's Law that he violated was this. You will do a stupid thing in direct relationship to the amount of people watching at the time. The more people looking, the sillier you're going to look. And if you go back to verse 1, of 12, it says thousands of people had gathered. He looked ridiculous. What drove him to do it? It was just silly. You know, and uh, the people in the crowd, man, they were eating this up. A lot of people followed Jesus for the same, re same reason people go to auto races, just to watch somebody crash and burn. You know, they loved it when Jesus took apart the Pharisees. They loved it when he made fools of the Sadducees. And now this kid is an empty net. I mean, we're wide open. Let him have it. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And the pronoun shifts here. Notice verse 15 with me. Um, then he said to them... Notice the pronoun shift. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in the abundance of possession. The whole dynamic shifts away from persecution. Jesus takes the opportunity to say, listen, there's a problem here, and you've just seen it in this young man. But he's not addressing this young man anymore. He shifts, and he's going to the entire crowd, and he says, listen, I want to warn all of you. The word beware there is a huge, huge word. It comes up in 1 Peter, remember? Beware of Satan. He is a roaring lion that will tear you guys apart. And now to all of us, all of them, he says, listen, I want to warn every one of you. Our snake bit with a venom that courses through your veins, that causes you to do silly, foolish things like this young man has. Now I want to, Recoil from that. Now, oh, come on, I'm not a greedy person. He said to them. Notice what he says here, too. Beware of all forms of greed. Forms of greed? I thought that was just one kind. You know, greedy for money, greedy for things. 
Oh, no. The word greed is a neutral word. It's an insatiable thirst for more. You fill in the blank. Uh, give me a couple examples. Someone with a poor self-image. I never feel right about myself. I never feel good. I have an insatiable appetite for affirmation. I will become anything you want me to be if you'll only affirm me. I'll join you in whatever foolish activity you want me to join you in if you just say I'm a good person. It leads me into destructive relationships. It leads me into foolish things because greed clouds our ability to see reality. You guys tracking with me here? When I want something so bad, I end up being willing to do anything to achieve it. A young lady raised to be the apple of her parents' eyes. Everything is about her. Every family gathering is an opportunity for her to strut her abilities and, and, and they just gush over her. She grows up to be an adult and then everything has to be about her. An insatiable desire for attention and, and everything has to focus on her. Jesus returns now to the subject at hand. This greed is about more money. The problem what clouded this young man's uh, reasoning and why he did such a foolish thing is because he wanted that happening inheritance so bad, he was ready to do anything to get it. It's the reason why a lot of us find ourselves head over heels in debt. How could we have been so foolish? Why did we do such stupid things? A lot of the things I owe money for, I don't even possess anymore. Why? Because you wanted it so bad, it clouded your ability to really reason about things. Why did I buy a house I couldn't afford? Why did I listen to that salesperson that talked me into that? You wanted it so bad that you talked yourself into it. So you can begin to see where Jesus is headed with this thing. A new wall hanging demands new carpet. Then a new paint job. Finally, we need to hang new curtains. And just about the time I get the house right where I want it, we sell it and start all over again. An insatiable desire for more. It's like salt water. It just causes me to want more. I'm never satisfied. A greedy person is never at rest. They can never enjoy what they have because it's never enough. They've got to push on for the next thing. But Jesus is making his point. He said, I'm concerned about all of you. There is a common human problem that all of us have, and it gets us in trouble. We want it all, and we want it now. And we make poor and foolish decisions to get it. So now he tells a story. He's going to tell the story about someone named the rich fool. Now, that would be an interesting uh, name to be hung on you for the rest of your life. Now, I want to be careful here because a lot of us would be thinking, oh, yeah, greed, that's a rich person's problem. I want to point out that Jesus' problem with this man wasn't the fact that he was rich, nor was it the fact that he got his riches in an ill-gotten manner. His problems were other than that, and they're shared by rich and poor alike. I'm suggesting greed is, well, Jesus is suggesting greed is a universal problem. 
So I'm looking at this parable. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I definitely want to beat the Lutherans to brunch. So we will be sure and uh, get out on time. When I read this parable, and you can read it yourself, and I begin to look at the word picture Jesus is painting here, I can see it in my mind. This is what I see. I'm on the prairies. I'm on a farm where their wheat is to the horizon. There is barely room for a path. I mean, it is a bumper crop. On the upper left-hand part of the portrait Jesus is painting, what I see are three or four smallish barns. You get the idea right away. All of that wheat isn't going to fit into those barns. So you pan back in the picture. Uh, I picture the house as one of those old farm Victorian homes. You know, it's just a beautiful, wonderful place, wraparound porch. On the back of the porch, gazing out at the at that bumper crop, is a farmer, but dressed a little nicer than most farmers are. And he's looking off out to the horizon, but when you see the gleam in his eye, you see he doesn't see wheat. He's having an epiphany. I made it. I'm rich. I mean, I've got the uh, brass ring here. I can do whatever I want. I could buy whatever I want. I'm rich. Hooray. That's what I see. As I gaze at this picture Jesus is painting, all of a sudden it begins to become a window. And I look through it and I see some principles. Three misassumptions that the rich fool made that I might be making as well. The first misassumption, and you can see it um, throughout there, it uh, begins at, uh, at verse 18. As misassumption number one. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Misassumption number one. He assumed that all he possessed was owned by him. Huge mistake. It's all mine. My crops, my barns, my soul, it's mine. Now, if it was his, God would have absolutely no gripe with him at all. He owns it. He can get rid of it any way he wants. The point the Bible makes, though, is he doesn't own anything. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and the world who and all who dwell therein. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. The earth is the Lord, or no, um, to the Lord belongs the heavens, yea, even the highest heavens, and everything upon the earth. Haggai chapter 2 verse 8, all the silver is mine and all the gold as well. He didn't own anything, God owned it. And God had ideas on how it should be, should be spent. Now I have to correct something I said last year here. I made the same point about God owning everything. In fact, every stewardship message I preach will have that as a point. God owns everything. And I told you, every dollar, every Deutschmark, every mina, every peso, every Every dollar you own belongs to God. Some insightful person came up afterward and said, Phil, 
There are no more Deutschmarks. There are no more uh, Franks. Euro dollars. So if you have Euro dollars, you don't own any of it. It all belongs to God. Your relationship to what you possess and own is fiduciary. It is a trust. God has given you all of these things with two purposes in mind. First Timothy chapter 6, 17 and 18. Here's your job description as a trustee. Enjoy all that I have given you. No guilt in owning a nice house, no guilt in dressing well, no, dress, no guilt in going on a holiday. But I want you to be generous with it. So every Canadian Christian, it's a balance they seek to achieve in their life. Consumption and generosity. I'm not here preaching poverty, but I am preaching balance. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to enjoy life. But you have to give something back. And you see his problem? He thought it was all his. He could consume it all. I don't need to give anything to anyone else. It's mine. It's not yours. I'm going to put an exclamation point at the end of this because it's so important. Absolutely, if you not grant me the fact that all of your stuff belongs to God, then you may as well pack up and go home now because it's your stuff and you can get rid of it any way you want. Here's my illustration. Several years ago, I flew to Chicago on business. My mother and father were in nursing homes in Detroit. So uh, I have a friend in Chicago named Alfred Biller, and he said, hey, I'm going to loan you my car. It was like a 1997 Honda Civic, and I said, that's great, I'll take it. Well, he picks me up at the airport and presents me with the keys with his brand new BMW. I will never forget, 76 miles emblazoned on the speedometer. But I don't want it. You know, give me the Honda. I don't want your new car. He said, it's too late. Gisela's already got the Honda. You have to take this. Oh, I took it. And you know exactly what happened. It's January, 20 miles out of Detroit. Frozen rain, you know, the ice everywhere. And I'm doing 360s down the highway there. And you know the thought that came to my mind? It wasn't the concrete embankment off to the side of the road. It was Fred Biller's powerful German hands squeezing the oxygen out of my lungs. I felt horrible. Now, there was no accident. I slid into a snowbank and everything was fine. But the point was this. It wasn't mine. I treat other people's stuff better than I treat my own stuff. It made a difference to me that he had trusted it to me in trust. And, I, and there was a purpose in mine. Everything you have, God has given to you with a purpose. If you only think of yourself, you're going to mess it up. First misassumption, he thought it was all his. Second misassumption is strewn throughout this entire passage. There are six eyes and five mys, 11 personal, first person personal pronouns in this short little passage. There are more first person pronouns in this short little passage than any other similar, similar sized passage in the Bible. It was I, I, me, me, my, my. Notice there's no third person personal pronouns here. There's no thems, there's no theirs, there's no those. There's not even a y'all in this passage. It's all about me. It's all about me. You ever watch the movie Beaches? Bette Mittler has a great line in this movie that perfectly depicts our culture and how we think about ourselves. Her line is this. She's speaking to a friend. All we've been doing is talking about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? 
It's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. Now we older people think, well, that's a young person's problem. Young people are, you know, too self-consumed. Uh, knowing that I'm aging, I'm 66, and I think, well, in 20 or 30 years I might be old, so I better read up on this malady that's uh, oppressing me. And so uh, I read a book by a really great uh, Christian psychologist, Henry Brandt, and he said this, the older you get, the more life becomes about you. My pain, my aches, my needs, my. And he said to them, it's about all of you, not just a few of you. It runs through your veins and it causes you to focus just on me. And our culture lights the fire. The moment you wake up in the morning, you're hearing a refrain whistled in your ear. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. And then even we Christian people by noon pick it up and begin to hum it to ourselves. It's all about me. In fact, I choose my church that way. I don't walk into a church and say, I wonder how I could serve here. I walk into a church and ask myself the question, I wonder how these people can serve me here. What are the programs and what are the uh, advantages if I become a part of this church? It's all about me. Totally misunderstood. Misassumption. One other misassumption, it's in verse 19. You see it there? I have enough stored up that I can enjoy it for many years. You see the word many years? The very next verse, God says, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. He didn't have years. He didn't even have 24 hours. If demographics are correct, 1.7 out of every 100 of us seated here before me will not be here next year. We will decease. There's no telling who that might be. But there's an end. Let's play a game together. Chuck Swindoll has, it, has us play it in his book, Come Before Winter. Let's pretend someone who loves me puts a penny in the bank for me for every second of the day. The only catch is this. At the end of the day, whatever I choose not to use or to use poorly, I have to forfeit and give it back. And I never get it again. So you quickly calculate, okay, 86,400 seconds in a day, that's $864 a day, $6,000 a week, $312,000 a year. I'm rich! Okay, let's not pretend. But somebody who loves you puts a second in your time bank. 60 of them in every minute, 1,440 minutes of every day after day after day. But whatever you choose not to use or to use wisely, at the end of the day, they're forfeit, and you never get them back. My wife and I live in a series of losses at our stage in life. We had three daughters. I used to tell people in my seminars, my daughters were the kind of women that could make a millionaire out of a man, provided he started with two million. I mean, they were expensive chicks. Uh, we used to buy hairspray in 55-gallon industrial drums, you know. Uh, it was amazing. Kids are, when they're in diapers, I'm thinking, when will they be out of diapers? Seemed like they immediately went into high school. Then I'm thinking, when will they be out of my house? I mean, they said some 
tough stuff to me sometimes. You know what? My kids are grown and gone, have families of their own. They live a thousand kilometers away. Many's the time my wife and I sit in our home alone and think we would give practically anything to have the worst of those days back. But when they're gone, they're gone. We buried my folks, we buried my wife's folks over the last 10 years. I can remember the dog days of my relationship with my parents. I said some tough things to those two wonderful people. I can remember coming home, snatching the keys off the mantle, running out to visit my friends, leaving those two people sitting on the couch wondering, I wonder how it's going with Phil. I would give practically anything to have the worst of those days back. But when they're gone, they're gone. Brothers and sisters, you do not have an endless amount of time. The time to do good is now. The time to do right is now. There will be a time when it's over. No second chances, no reincarnation, no second shot at it. You had your shot. You know what? If I were you and I had a wayward child, I'd call them up and come home and I'd give them a big hug. Even if the relationship is difficult. One of these days it'll all be over. Life is just too short. He didn't realize it. He thought he had all the time in the world. So I'm looking through the window. I'm seeing these three misassumptions. Finally, something occurs to me. Hey, I've done all right in life. My wife and I managed well. We've saved. We spent less early on, and we have more to spend now. I'm not rich, but we're pretty comfortable. I could buy a motorhome. I could take off and go wherever I want. I could buy my wife the ring I've always wanted to buy her. I could take all of my kids and grandkids down to Disneyland. I could golf every day. Me, I, my, oh my God. I'm a rich fool. There's more of him in me than I care to admit even to myself. And there's a little bit of him in every one of you. And that's the point Jesus is making. Brothers and sisters, life has become too much about us. We've forgotten about the purposes of God in our life. It's all about self-consumption. We think we'll fix it later. And it doesn't happen. One more pronoun shift. Down in, uh, down in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so he moves over, stage right, addresses his friends, his disciples. Another shift. Therefore, therefore, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat, about what your body, what you put on your body, or what you wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Here's his point to his friends. You guys are just too bent out of shape about what you're going to buy to wear, where we're going to dinner, what my next holiday is going to be. You become anxious about it. And, and your whole life is consumed with these physical things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you're anxious and, and, and overly consumed. Hey, the world thinks this way. It's all about stuff. It's all about accumulation. It's all about me. Don't you think this way? You know, there's a new malady hitting the states in Canada. Uh, it is in the Oxford Dictionary now, a new word just introduced this year. And it has now been used in court cases in the states and is expected to be used in court cases in Canada. It is The malady is called FOMO. Ever heard of it? F-O-M-O. The fear of missing out. It's an anacronym. Fear of missing out. So how's it being used? Well, if I'm receiving a text while I'm driving, the re it's not my fault. You know, I have this malady that I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on something and I just can't stand it. So I'll look at the text as it comes in. FOMO happens when one of your friends is deeply involved with you in a personal discussion and they answer their cell phone right in the middle of the discussion and walk away from you talking to the other person because we're just so afraid of missing out. I see so many of us that way. I'm so afraid that I miss out if I don't get the new iPhone. You know, um, all kinds of wonderful things. In fact, I tried to talk to my wife in this last week. Uh, I need a new Big Bertha driver. You know, uh, I know my old one is only a couple years old, but this will add eight yards onto every one of my drives. It was totally lost on her. But the point is we get fixated on this stuff, don't we? It's all about more stuff. And he says, listen, you don't have to be this way. Look at the lilies of the field, he says. Solomon was not arrayed in a way that they were, but your heavenly father took care of them. Look at the birds of the field. They don't get all bent out of shape about planting and storing and, 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 and where my next meal's coming from and all that stuff. Their Heavenly Father takes care of them. Now, I want to be careful here. It's not suggesting that good planning isn't important, that you don't need to save. His concern is, is that we become too preoccupied with this stuff. That's how the world is, all about stuff. Now, up until this point in Jesus' sermon, he has engendered in me a weak amount of, uh, of guilt. I feel a little guilty. Nothing that a double cheeseburger, bacon burger at McDonald's with fries and a chocolate shake couldn't cure after the service. Now he's got to throw in verse 33, a carryover activity. I was fine up until this. Sell your possessions. Give them to the poor and provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. So you're not a greedy person, Jesus says. You're different than everybody else. Okay, go home. 
Pick out something you really love. Sell it. Give the money away to someone who could not advance your cause. There'll be no positive repercussions to you and thereby lay up treasures in heaven. I will open up the windows of heaven and I will shower down upon you every blessing in abundance. Sell, give, provide. Great little outline. I am totally unnerved by that. I am still struggling with the repercussions of this in my own life. I don't see myself as a greedy person. But when Jesus challenges me in a very specific way, there's a battle being fought inside of me. I'll just go through the mental gymnastics of saying, okay, yeah, I could get rid of it if I wanted to, but, well, there, I've done it. Yeah. Go, pick it out, sell it, and give it away. As far as I know, that's probably the only way Jesus is going to assist me to break the hold of greed in my life. I am a greedy person. Not someone that has the occasional greedy tendency, Jesus, I am a greedy person. My life is too much about me. Less about you and less about others. And I keep putting it off that someday I'll fix it. Forgive me, Lord. I'm the rich fool. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your infinite mercy. Why you put up with us, Lord, who have been given so much advantage and consume so much of it on ourselves. Teach us, Lord, to be more like you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.